Good morning. Open your Bibles to the book of Galatians. Chapter 1. Let's read verses 1 through 9 this morning. Galatians chapter 1, verse 1 through 9. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me, to the churches of Galatia, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed accursed. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the wonderful ability that we have and the freedom that we have to gather here corporately together um, each Sunday to worship you, to express our joy in the salvation, the eternal life that we have in Jesus Christ. We thank you for that ability. We pray for those who don't have that ability to be here with us uh, through sickness. Um, we pray that you would lay your healing hand upon them. We pray that you would strengthen them, that you would give them peace and comfort uh, through this time. We pray for those who may be traveling today, that you would uh, hedge their ways and, and protect them. And Lord, we, we long for uh, all of us to be able to be together. Well, Lord, we thank you for this opportunity and for those who are here. We pray, Lord, that you would guard and guide me as I preach your word, that you would um, use me as an instrument in your hand to glorify you and guard your people from anything false that I may say as I am a fallible man, but Lord, your word is infallible and inerrant, and we pray your blessings on us. May we hear your word, may we be convicted of it, and convinced of your greatness, and we pray all this in Christ's name, amen. So last Sunday, we looked at the heart of the Apostle Paul, and first and foremost, Paul had a heart for the Lord, um, you'll remember that first and foremost the apostle paul had a heart for the lord and secondly we looked at the heart of the apostle paul which overflowed from his his love for the lord 
into a love for the Lord's people. Um, not, only, not only the known people of the Lord, but also the unconverted. Um, Paul had a, a, an insatiable desire to see everyone know Christ and come to Christ. And he went to great lengths, as you'll remember, the list of suffering that he went through, the physical suffering, the beatings, the shipwrecks, all those things that he went through in order to go to places and lay, down, lay the foundation of Jesus Christ. Paul had exerted himself for the sake of these churches that he's writing to right now. He exerted himself and suffered at great lengths to preach the gospel to these churches and to lay the foundation of Jesus Christ there in these churches. He'd endured much in order to preach the gospel to them. To establish the foundation of these churches, to have elders appointed in these churches, to instruct these, these churches doctrinally so that they wouldn't be tossed to and fro by every wind of doctrine that came along. But Judaizers had snuck in and started tempting the Galatians to what Paul calls a false gospel. And Paul's desire was for them to know the dangerous waters they were about to traverse. They were on a path that would cut them off from what he says in verse 3, as the grace and peace of God that we have in Jesus Christ. And so Paul continues to address the Galatians here. And I want to read a, a smaller part of what we just read. I want to read through uh, 3 through 7 of chapter 1 as we pick up this morning. He says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember last week, this is... He, he's reminding them of, of how grace and peace come to you. It doesn't come to you through Thomas the Train theology. I think I can, I think I can. It doesn't come through bootstrap theology where you pull up your bootstraps. It comes through the grace and peace of Jesus Christ. And so he says this opening statement, which he commonly says, but then he follows it with an uncommon statement to the churches in verse 4 and 5 where he says, Who gave himself for our sins, right? Um, to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. There's a lot packed in verse 4 and 5. A lot is packed in there. And then he says, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. There's some astonishing statements made here by the Apostle Paul. And I think that, that I, what, I, what I hope and pray and what I prayed this week as I studied is that we see these astonishing statements in the light of the astonishment. Because I think in our culture it's too easy to, to pass over this and not think of what Paul is actually saying here. We'll get to the astonishment of him saying, let them be accursed in a following Sunday. But I want us to see the astonishment of what he says in verses 4 and 6. Paul wants them to know, and this is, this is tragic, but deserting the gospel is deserting Christ. Deserting the gospel 
is deserting Jesus Christ. Abandoning the gospel, walking away from the gospel is not a, a little thing. It's tragic. It has eternal consequences. If you walk away from the gospel of Jesus Christ, you walk away from Jesus Christ himself. The Galatians have been told that, yeah, I mean, this, and this was the common message of the Judaizers. Hey, yeah, Jesus is good. Jesus is good. And like all, all, all probably all, but at least most, but I, I would say all of the cults of history say the very same thing. We notice a common theme among other religions and among other gospels, and that is this. Jesus can be a prophet. Jesus can be a great teacher. Jesus can be a fantastic moral example. He can be a, a great, terrific man. But here's what it always amounts to. That Jesus is never enough. It always amounts to that. Jesus is not enough. And that's what the Judaizers were telling the churches of Galatia. Jesus is good. Sure. He's a great teacher. He's a prophet. But he's not enough. He's not enough to gain you entrance into the family of God. When the Judaizers were following the apostles around and, and they'd, sneak, they'd sneak in after them with the goal of gaining proselytes, and they would seek to convince them that faith in Jesus is good, but it's just not enough. And if you really want to be in the family of God, then you need to be circumcised, and you need to follow the laws of Torah. You remember that there was a big council in Jerusalem in Acts 15 all about this that we'll discuss in a further date. And what it is is it's nothing more than a works righteousness salvation. That's what this is. Whenever you add anything to, to faith for the purpose of justification, because that that word justification is a legal term, biblically, that means that you've been declared right with God and that you're in a good relationship with God. That's what that word means. And they're coming along and they're saying, faith in Christ is great, but it's not enough. What you have to do is you have to do a work. You have to do a good thing. You have to follow the laws of Moses. You have to follow the laws of Torah if you really want to be in the family of God. It's a works righteousness salvation. No matter what, it, what, what they say, you can carve it down and get to the core of it, and it's always a works righteousness salvation. There's a way for you to become righteousness in the sight of God that's more than just Jesus. Now, not all cults believe in Jesus or like him. I'm not saying, but there's always some works righteousness plan that you have to do. A works righteousness salvation is a system invented by mankind. 
a works righteousness salvation started as soon as the fall occurred. That's what Cain did. Cain offered an offering, but it wasn't by faith. You remember that? And so as soon as the fall occurred, a works righteousness system was brewed up. It's an invention of mankind. And the purpose of such a system, and I want you to hear me on this, the purpose of such a system is an attempt to clear the conscience in a way other than God's design for you to have a clear conscience. That's what it is. A works righteousness salvation is a system invented by mankind in order to soothe mankind's conscience in a way other than God's design for us to have a clear conscience. It is one of a myriad of ways to suppress the truth of God and unrighteousness. Now, when we read Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32... A lot of the times, what we're thinking about in our mind is the immoral sins of the world, right? The promiscuous sins of the world. But that's not all that Paul's talking about in Romans 1. He's talking about any way in which mankind suppresses the truth of God in unrighteousness. And listen, there is no other way to clear the conscience outside of Christ. Which is why there's never an end to the list that a works righteousness salvation gives. There's always something more. There's always something better. There's always, you can give more. You can do more. You can make this journey. You can make that journey. You can make this trip. You can do this kind of mission. It never ends. Because the conscience is never cleared outside of Jesus Christ. It's seared but it's never cleared outside of Jesus Christ. God has revealed in the gospel how to be made right with God. Amen? God has revealed how to be made right with him in the gospel of Jesus Christ. He's he's revealed how to be guiltless, right? Or to use the, the term justified, Declared blameless in the sight of God. There is no way to cleanse yourself of guilt outside of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. And any other attempt to do such a thing is a suppression of the truth that God has revealed. Paul says this in verse 6. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him Who? Jesus. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ. You're you're deserting God. You're deserting Christ. You've been called in the grace. What does grace mean? Gift. Right? The grace of God is the gift of God. You don't earn gifts. You earn paychecks. You earn wages. But you've been gifted salvation by the grace of God. 
And so Paul says, I'm astonished that you're so quickly deserting him. Now notice, he's already said that they're, they're starting to cling to another gospel, even though there is no other gospel. They're clinging to this false system of theology and salvation and hope. But here he says, what you're really, in reality, doing is you're deserting Jesus. And it, the Judaizers may have made you think that it's a menial thing, but it's not. It's gigantic, and it's tragic, and it has eternal consequences. And you're not deserting anything other than Jesus. Paul is warning them with great urgency that what they are doing by embracing this false theology, this false system of salvation, is actually abandoning Christ. It is a system that leads you away from God. And the contrast here is that the Judaizers are coming along and saying, hey, do you really want to be in the family of God? then let me tell you what you need to do. There's more to it than Jesus. It's not Christ alone. Why do you think the reformers came up with the five solas? So that we would remember that justification is by faith alone, in Christ alone, according to God's word alone, right? For the glory of God alone. All, all the five solas came up in simplicity so that we would remember the gospel and Paul gives them here. The Judaizers are coming along going, hey, listen, I know what Paul said. I don't even know if Paul's message is really authentic. He's not even really an authentic apostle. And so we're going to go into how he defends this in the remainder of the chapter in a few weeks. And then he says, you know, I mean, I, Jesus, yeah, but not enough. Not if you really want to be spiritual. Not if you really want to be in the family of God. There's more to it. You need to be circumcised. You need to follow the laws of Torah. And Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is teaching that it actually does the opposite. They're saying, hey, Jesus isn't really gaining you entrance into the family of God. You've got to do these things too. Then you'll really be a part of the family of God. Then you'll really be a child of God. And Paul is saying that's actually the opposite. It's not going to bring you closer to Christ. It's not going to bring you closer to God. It's actually going to drive you away from both of them. And by choosing that path, Paul says, you are choosing to walk away from Christ. Now, I, I have to believe that there were legitimate Christians in the church when they read this letter. They, they had to have been like, I can't believe that we fell for it. And I don't want us to think that we are beyond succumbing to such thoughts. Because we are. In a lot of ways, we just clean it up and come up with our little list of how Christians should behave outside of Scripture, right? And then we lay that, we want to lay that template on everybody else. And then when they do something that's, that's against our list, then what we say is, oh, that, I don't know if that person's saved. Right? 
We have to be really, really careful because legalism rears its ugly head in all kinds of ways in the church. And as I said last week, legalism is the death nail to Christian joy. There's no joy when we gather if there's a bunch of legalists that are laying their template on you or you're coming here expecting to have a template laid on you and be judged according to someone's list that's outside of Scripture. Amen? A little bit louder. Amen? Amen, Amen right? We, we don't want to be that kind of church. But if we're not careful, every church moves in that direction if we don't cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ. If we don't understand that those kind of things push us away from the grace of Christ and the gospel. So Paul is... is telling them you're actually walking away from Christ. Why would you walk away from the only source of grace? Why would, you, why would you walk away from the only means of reconciliation to God? Why would you choose to abandon your only hope for eternal life? You remember back in Haggai where, where Haggai comes along and he asked the priest some questions? And the message to the people were, listen, you can't make anything holy. And doing the work of the temple and the work of the Lord will not make you holy because you're defiled and whatever you touch is defiled unless you're purified holy by someone outside yourself. Right? That's what Paul's saying here. Remember the gospel. Why would you choose to abandon your only hope for eternal life? Why would you give up your eternal adoption, adoption into the family of God? Know this, that when you... When you start stepping away from the gospel, and it typically happens incrementally in our, in our walk, typically happens incrementally, when you start doing that, you're walking away from Christ. You're walking away from the source of grace. You're walking away from the source of peace. And so Paul warns them, the message that you're hearing is not what you think it is. It's not going to bring you closer to God. It's going to drive you away. And then Paul connects another truth that's critical here. He says in verse 4, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age. What delivers us? Christ. Not your works. Christ. Not what you do. Christ. Not whether or not you had a good Christian day yesterday. Christ. Not whether or not you had a bad Christian day yesterday, but Christ. What delivers us from this present evil age is Jesus. Now, I, I want to highlight this, this statement here, and, and I actually titled the sermon somewhat like this because it, it stands out to me. It jumps out. To deliver us from the present evil age. I, I want that to make sense to us. This present evil age. He, he To deliver us from the present evil age. I want that to make sense. How, how does the gospel or, or how does Christ deliver us 
from the present evil age. I mean, it almost sounds like we're being delivered from the present, right? But how many of y'all are still here? Half of us. That's, that's not good. Right. Dave's here. We had, we had half of us here, so all right. We're still in the world. Amen? So how are we delivered from this present evil age? What does Paul mean by us being delivered from the present evil age? And here's what I think. And don't hold me to this. This is just my opinion. I, if I passed out a sheet of paper to every adult in this, in this room, and I asked you to write down ten things in our culture that expresses itself as evil, if I, if I said, okay, every adult, raise your hand. Okay, somebody pass out a piece of paper. I want you to write out ten things, write a list of ten things in which you think our culture expresses itself as evil. I think, I think that a lot of the list would consist of immoral behavior in some form or fashion. That's what I believe. And I'm not saying that those immoral expressions are not expressions of evil. But I wonder if our list would mirror the Apostle Paul's. Would we even have his point on our list? If so, if it is on the list, would it be at the top of the list? Or would it be down the list behind some of the more offensive, immoral behavior? Paul's list in Romans 1. Just, just let me listen. You don't have to turn there, but just look. Ungrateful to God. Unwilling to worship God. Unwilling to repent towards God. Unwilling to believe God. Unwilling to be thankful to God. Unwilling to recognize God, right? The other things are expressions of those things. But Paul's list is always centered around our behavior towards God directly. And all of those things are bottled up and they're sold to people in a works righteousness salvation. Because listen, a works righteousness salvation is ungrateful to God for the, for the offering that Christ made for sins. And a works righteousness salvation is unwilling to worship God because they're more eager to worship self and what self has done. And a works righteousness is unwilling to repent towards God because they think the works is making up for the sin. And unwilling to believe God is bottled up in a works righteousness salvation because God has revealed that we shall be justified by faith, by believing God. And a works righteousness salvation, as I said earlier, is an attempt to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. 
So when you look at Romans 1, 18 through 32, and you see all this suppression of, of truth, what's bottled up in that and what's, what's expressed is a works righteousness salvation as well. A works righteousness salvation is an attempt to suppress the truth of God in unrighteousness. And I think it may be hard for us to say or maybe, I mean, I, I had to put some, some thought to this in my study because I'm, I try to be very careful about what I say. I, I don't want, I don't care about my opinion and I don't want you to care about my opinion, really. I want you to care about what God's word says. But, but I, I think it's hard for us maybe to wrap our minds around this truth at times because we're still battling with a fallen body, amen? And we're still living in a fallen culture. But here's, remember the list that I said that I hypothetically am asking you to make. Here's what Paul, I believe, would have at the top of the list of evil expressed in this present age. The greatest evil in the world. It's a bold statement, right? The greatest evil in the world is any doctrine that attacks the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's what I think Paul's saying here. And, and, and I can prove it from other, other passages here in Galatians. We'll look at that at another time. The greatest evil in the world is any doctrine that attacks the gospel of Jesus Christ because you can't attack the gospel without attacking Christ. Because you can't walk away from the gospel without walking away from Christ. And so you can't attack the gospel without attacking the person of the gospel, the Savior of that message, the Lord of that message. If you attack the gospel, you attack Jesus Christ himself. And so think back to your list that, that we were talking about hypothetically, and I wonder if when you started making your list, hopefully in your mind, I wonder if your immediate thoughts went to, well, the world expresses evil by attacking the gospel. Or was it some immoral behavior that drives you crazy? And, and I'm not saying that immoral behavior is not sinful. Please don't misunderstand me. But what's at the top of our list? top of the Bible's list is any attack on the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is also an attack on God himself. Any doctrine that attacks, skews, thwarts, veils, maligns, or distorts the gospel of Jesus Christ, Paul says it should be number one on our list. And so Paul goes on to say, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. So Paul wants us to understand that this distortion of the gospel that is always presented as a necessary addition to the grace of God 
That's how it's presented. Is not part of the gospel at all. It is a distortion of the gospel, and hence not another gospel, but a false gospel. It is an attack against Jesus Christ. It is an attack on the gospel. It is a religiously dressed up way of suppressing the truth of God. I'll say that again. It is a religiously dressed up way of suppressing the truth of God and resisting God and the gracious salvation offered in Jesus Christ. Amen. Make no mistake, this kind of doctrine is, no matter how dressed up it is, is nonetheless trampling underfoot the salvation that is offered in Jesus Christ that the author of Hebrews talks about. And the church should be willing to bleed and die for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The church has been willing and has bled and died for the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the church today should still be willing to bleed and to die and to suffer for the purity of Jesus Christ. Now, we pray that we won't have to physically bleed, amen, or die. But if it comes, we pray that God would pour out his grace and we can endure that kind of suffering for the gospel because without the gospel, no one will be saved. Right? Because how can one believe if no one's heard? And how can someone hear if no one's sent? And how can someone be sent if there's not a preacher to go? Proclaim and herald the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think Satan loves our list of ten things if we don't have the gospel at number one. Because we're real good at making that list of promiscuous, immoral behavior and then being like the religious garb of Jesus' day who get on to them for eating with tax collectors and prostitutes. We like that list because then we can bubble ourselves from sinners who need Jesus. And we can say, well, you know, I, I don't want to do that because I don't want to be around those kind of people. We forget, but you were once dead in your trespasses and sins, and your life before Christ may have been religiously dressed up, but you were just as dead in your sins. So I, I wonder if, if, if that was on the number one spot on our list, and if it wasn't, I pray that we'll repent of that and we'll hear God's word and we'll be more zealous for the gospel and the defense of the gospel and the speaking the gospel into people's lives and the preaching of the gospel and maintaining the purity of the gospel than we are by judging immoral people. The free, gracious salvation in Jesus Christ, listen, it's always under attack. Every culture, every generation, it's always under attack. 
But here's the reality. It's the only truth that can set someone free. It's the only truth that can set someone free. It's always being distorted. And the church must defend it and proclaim it as boldly as they can. Now, I want to I close with just a little bit of application. I mean, it's doctrinal truth, but it's application. I want you to see in verse 4 where Paul says, who, who, who gave himself, Jesus, right? Jesus gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Now, I just want to stop right there because that jumped out at me last week and I didn't have time to get to it. But I don't want us to pass over this. So, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. And I want us to ask this question. Is the will of God always comfortable? A wrong answer. Hear me on this. A wrong answer to this question has caused many religious people to walk away from the Christian faith. Notice I said religious. A false understanding of this question has caused many Christians to fall into despair. We need a right answer, and we need to be reminded of the right answer constantly. Is the will of God always comfortable? An incorrect conclusion will lead you to depression when the struggles of life come your way. Is the will of God always comfortable? Well, the whole mission of Christ was the will of God. Amen? The whole life of Christ was the will of God. The condescension of the eternal Son of God was the will of the Father. The mission included taking the form of a creature, a servant of God, living a perfect life while being tempted in every point, yet without sin. Being tempted with such intensity and agony that he sweat drops of blood. Doing all that, living a perfect life of obedience in order for him to be able to walk to the cross and suffer the wrath of God for all the sins of his people. The suffering that was endured on the cross is utterly inconceivable by the human mind. We will, I don't think we'll ever be able to conceive fully the suffering that Christ suffered on the cross when his father poured out his wrath on all the sins, on Christ for all the sins of his people. And all of that was the will of the triune God, the will of the Father for his Son, the will of the Son for himself, and the will of the Holy Spirit for the Son. Was that comfortable? I mean, I, I don't think we can call that comfortable. But nonetheless, Christ was willing, and he did indeed suffer so much on our behalf. He was obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, if Christ was willing to be so uncomfortable for his people, why wouldn't we? And I'm not, I'm not just talking about being uncomfortable for the glory of God. I'm also talking about being uncomfortable for God's people. 
Because remember we were talking about Paul's love for God overflowing into a love for his people. So if Christ did so much for the glory of God, remember John 17, I've glorified you, Father, right? Now glorify me. I've done what it, I needed to do to save my people. If Christ was willing to do that, are we? We should be. And, and here's the reality for us fallen human beings. Sometimes the will of God is uncomfortable because it brings pressure and persecution and suffering because we're doing what God wants us to do. Amen? But sometimes, and this is where we really come into the picture, I think, sometimes the will of God is uncomfortable for us because it's not our will for us. Sometimes our suffering is brought upon because we're actually doing the will of God. That's a good place to be. And sometimes our, uh, our being uncomfortable comes along because we're not in the will of God and it, God's will for us in the moment is not our will for us. And so... Listen, clinging to the gospel will cause you to suffer. If, if we're speaking the gospel clearly, if we're preaching the gospel clearly, it will bring suffering of some sort upon us because the natural mind does not want to hear about the exclusivity of Jesus Christ. And... Defending the gospel against legalism will cause you to suffer. Because we like comfort, and our list makes us comfortable. It also makes us reliant upon ourselves rather than the grace of God. Legalists are very comfortable. Not, maybe not their conscience, but they're very comfortable because they can get out and go, see, we even tithe down to the mint of the leaf, right? Probably messing that up. We praise, oh, thank you, Lord, that I'm not like that guy. We, we, we love to, as fallen human beings, build up these systems that soothe our conscience. They don't clear it. They soothe it, they sear it, they make us more comfortable in our life, our sin. And so we don't like to hear that it's only by the grace of God. Because we like to feel that we've earned it. Because it gives us a sense of self-righteousness. So when we defend the gospel against legalism, it will cause you to suffer in some form. Resisting the temptation to find justification in peer opinion will cause you to suffer. I mean, we've, we, if we're honest, we fall prey to this all the time. We, we absolutely fall prey to this all the time. We, we give in to the temptation to find justification in peer opinion, and when we resist that, when we say, hey, listen, 
if you want me to do that, you're going to have to show me right here where it says that I need to do that. That will bring suffering upon you. I promise you. As a pastor of 21 plus years, I promise you when you do that, it will cause you to suffer. Dying to self each day will cause you to suffer. Amen? Amen. Standing for the Bible will cause you to suffer. But rejoice. Right? But rejoice. Because when you're clinging to the gospel, not only in doctrinal statement form, like our affirmation of faith, and not only for the preacher to get up Sunday and preach the gospel in purity, but when you're defending it in conversations with your family members and with coworkers, and when you're not giving in to things that they want you to give in to because of the gospel, it will cause you to suffer. But here's what we can't let it do. We can't let it make us withdraw. We have to be willing to suffer, and that means not withdrawing. It means having a love for God that overflows so much into a love for people that we're willing to suffer for people to hear the gospel. When we endure suffering for the name of Christ, it is proof that you are indeed clinging to the gospel of Jesus Christ and not clinging to justification by peer opinion. It's proof that you're clinging to the person and finished work of the only one that can save, and his name is Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we, we thank you for the gospel of Jesus Christ, and we thank you for the purity of it and the clarity of it that has been saved and recorded in your word and your protecting hand upon your word that we have so many copies of this in our own hands, on our bookshelves, in this church, in this country. We thank you, Lord, that we can so readily and easily pick up your word and study it and read it and, and find clarity in it so that we can know how we can be saved by faith in Jesus Christ, how, we can be declared, how sinners can be declared blameless before you, reconciled to you, adopted by you into your family, and it's all done by faith in the person and finished work of Jesus Christ, by faith alone. Thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for the simplicity of it. Thank you for the depth of it. Thank you for the treasure of it, and thank you for the joy that we have in it. We pray, Lord, that you would bless it, bless this church, Oh, may we be a, a, a place of grace, I pray. I pray it in Christ's name. Amen.